Just sit right down and hear a tale, a tale of a lucky Brit. His name is Michael Bisping, and he's such a cocky dick. Dana needed an Englishman to push his UK biz. He knew if Bisping had success, the UK would be his. The UK would be his. Good everyone, welcome to episode number 16 of the Forbidden Technique podcast on the Fight Site Podcast Network with me your host Silas Martin, my co-host is always Christian Reynolds. And today we're looking back at what was an extremely wacky and violent fight night card taking place in merry old England. Almost no decisions on this card, a ton of UFC game looking ass knockouts, just earth shattering single shot finishes. And some interesting results. So in the main event, uh, Tom Aspinall defeats Alexander Volkov by first round submission and uh, looked pretty good doing it. He was uh, very steadily and carefully working into range against Volkov, looking very sharp defensively, showing some very slick defensive moves that would look cool in any division in the UFC. And got a really nice takedown where he, uh, Volkov went uh, lead high kick to right hand and Aspinall pulled back out of range of the lead high kick and then slipped under the right hand to get a double leg takedown, uh, worked to side control, and finished with a straight arm lock. Yeah, Aspinall made it look easy. He really did. Uh, Volkov looked really flat, I think. I think Volkov kind of looked like Volkov. I don't know. I, th- I, I, I think on the feet, you know, he's always just been a bit a bit of, a, as Tyson Fury would say, a big stiff idiot. I thought he had some nice shot selection, approached the fight well on the feet particularly before a, a grappling approach had been established. Um, but it makes you wonder, man, what if Curtis Blades just like had a blue belt in jiu-jitsu? Maybe that fight would have been a lot easier for him. Yeah, I was, I was about to bring up that fight because it also kind of makes you think uh, if Curtis Blades could just like start grappling from a better position after his takedowns, he probably would have won that fight super easily, but instead he struggled a lot because he can't mix his takedowns in with his striking in the way that Aspinall can. Because Aspinall kind of just gets him into, like, he, they, whenever he gets the takedown, he's on the ground with him. He doesn't have to worry about Volkov already being up on his hands and working up to a stand-up. He was just getting him down and then being in, in a grappling position. He'd be, like, take him down into half guard or side control. So it was... It was just a lot easier for him because he had a way to get the takedown. It was like very consistent. And Volkov is not good at grappling, but he's a decent defensive wrestler. Yeah, and, and Aspinall didn't have to shoot 25 takedowns to get the win against Volkov. So I'm going to take this as a lesson about heavyweight and just the meta of this division in general. But if someone appears to be like quite athletic and really talented and have a good eye for the sport, oh, you should just pick them to win like every fight till they get to a title shot. Because I, I, I did the same thing with Cyril Garn, where after he beat JDS and was being put in the quote-unquote elite matchups of the heavyweight division, I was like, well, but there's just no way that we can know that he's ready to deal with this kind of matchup this early in his career. And he just was every time until he fought Francis Ngannou. And I'm sure, I'm sure plenty of people were saying the same thing about Francis Ngannou 
in his run up to fighting Stipe Miocic the first time. So, um, Tom Aspinall called out Taito Ivasa. I guess I'd like the fight, um, but at the same time, I'd kind of like to see them just kept on separate tracks because they're both one or two fights away from a title shot and I'd, I want to see them both contend. But they're also both young heavyweights who are still steadily improving and looking better with every fight. So there's plenty of time for both of them. Okay, so then in the co-main event, uh, Dan Hooker's trip back down to featherweight uh, did not work out. Uh, this is a great win for Arnold Allen, but at the same time, sometimes you've got to look at a fight and be like, well, the guy who didn't finish the ghost of Gilbert Melendez just dusted Dan Hooker in a round. Dan Hooker, who for a long time was famous for having one of the most absurd chins in the history of lightweight. You know, the war that he had with Dustin Poirier. Even the, the ass-whooping that he took from Edson Barboza en route to getting finished by body attrition. And the fact that he was willing to just stay in the pocket with people in order to land counters, where he's just looking at huge power punches, just crack him on the chin in order to find opportunities. And, you know, Arnold Allen who's obviously a very good fighter, but not a devastating hitter and not a historical finisher in the UFC, uh, just kind of took his lunch money. It was unfortunate. Hooker looked drawn out and slow. I just, I don't think, I don't think featherweight is going to solve any of his problems. Yeah, he looked terrible and like for a variety of reasons, like the weight cut, of course, uh, the fact that he kind of wasn't looking that good at lightweight uh, ever since the Dustin fight as well. So, you know, it's it's a bit of him being shot, a bit of him or being past it, being old, you know, being at a lower weight class. At least starting to regress. He's He's got to be on the downswing after that. Definitely. He had a couple of runs at lightweight that were getting him in, in, in the conversations with, with the elite guys. Yeah, and it... it gets really hard for him on like a meta level for the division to be going down to featherweight because like everyone there's really fast and it's of course like it's not just that at you know at 155 guys are fast at 145 guys are faster it's that like there are a lot of people at the top of 145 that are just like fast as their main attribute they will fuck up hooker at this point and hooker's getting older he's not going to get faster like he he looked incredibly slow the entire fight. He got beaten to the punch all but in like one situation where he landed a nice left hook on Allen that spun Allen around. But then Allen recovered instantly because he should be at 145. Yeah, and as we were saying, Hooker started beating people to the punch a lot more consistently at 155 due to you got to think some combination of fighting slightly slower guys and also just probably having better reaction speed because he has more water in his brain. Yeah, and a lot of the time at 155, he would just eat the punch and then land after, but be fine because his chin was better at 155. Yeah, exactly. Like, look at the Gilbert Burns knockout. Um, but Ar- Arnold Allen's clearly very good. Um, I did enjoy his post-fight uh, speech where he was just, like, giving a quick, quick little breakdown of the fight straight afterwards, and he was just like... Uh, so I was looking at Dan Hooker, and I'm like, he's really long, but he's kind of slow. I'm like, how do I get past the reach? I'm like, oh, fuck it, I'll just throw. And he was right. We didn't even have to do post-fight analysis for it. We could, we could have just like put in a clip of him saying that and then be like, yeah, that was the fight. 
and then go on to the next fight. That also just fits into the theme of this whole card and the takeaway that everyone should have from this event is that um, being longer and taller than your opponent is not actively an advantage, particularly not in MMA, uh, for a variety of reasons. In fact, I think almost everyone with a pronounced height advantage on this card got fucking dusted. So that's interesting. You know, particularly in a sport where with grappling and kicks and just a, a sport where footwork and defense is not as developed as in something like boxing. People who can leverage their attributes are going to win and just having the attributes on their own is not any kind of innate advantage. Yeah, Arnold Allen, clearly a very good fighter. Good footwork, good shot selection. He seems to be getting meaner. Seems to be at least trying to find more significant moments of offense where even if he's not getting finishes, he's making the rounds clearer. He definitely didn't overthink the matchup in a way that I was kind of worried he would. He just he just fought the guy that's slower than him that's also just so happens to have longer reach than him by beating the shit out of him. Also, Hooker has a lot of like things that he could have done to try and like stay long on the outside, but he doesn't fight like that. He always fights very short. Whenever he starts getting bombed on, he like lowers his stance to the same height as Allen, and then Allen just cracks him in the face. Yeah, and his defense is generally just being long and tall and people worrying about his reach advantage and not wanting to exchange with him because like, he can be very dangerous in those exchanges. Uh, but Arnold Allen just had such a pronounced speed advantage that he was just able to beat him to the punch in almost every exchange. And Dan Hooker was kind of just out on his feet for a good portion of this fight because he was just getting bombed on every time he tried to enter range because having that kind of long boy defense probably isn't going to serve you particularly well if you're constantly having to pressure someone with a pronounced speed advantage. So a uh, rough for Dan Hooker, just go back up to lightweight, if not welterweight. Or retire. Um, re- really? I, I mean, what else does he have to do? Like, he's not going to get back up to the top. If he wants to just hang around, but it seemed like he was a guy that has title aspirations, and normally guys that have title aspirations that kind of get beaten into realizing they're likely never going to be champion either have to cling to the fact they'll be champion one day, or they have to just accept, this is my life now, I'm not going to get better than this. Yeah, I mean, I don't know why Dan Hooker's fighting. That's all up to him. Um, that's fair. If he's just do, like enjoys fighting and wants to get more money, then that's cool. He can like hang around the mid-card. And he's going to... He's going to dunk on guys like Nasrat Hackprast even at this point in his career where it seems like uh, the things that were getting him through those fights and getting him towards the elite matchups are starting to fade a little bit, which is a shame because I like Dan Hooker. He's always been a really fun fighter and he did make a lot of improvements over his run in the UFC. And then uh, Paddy Pimblett submitted Rodrigo Vargas in the first round. Um, Another fight where he just got fucked up really easily really quickly because his defense is completely non-existent. But then Rodrigo Vargas, much like Luigi Vandramini, just got MMA brain, wouldn't press his advantages, insisted on grappling with Paddy Pimblett, which just gave him time to get his shit back together because that is the phase in which Paddy Pimblett is most actually technical. Um, And then he ends up getting up and Rodrigo Vargas, rather than getting back to range and trying to just tag Paddy Pimblett up again, um, he just like hangs around with him in the clinch until he eventually gets tripped and is back taken into a rear naked choke. So Paddy Pimblett's okay. He's pretty fun. 
and he's going to be in some good action fights and he's going to lose in some really stupid ways before he gets like even that far up the division. Um, but I don't I still don't really need to see him fight more of these guys who aren't particularly UFC level because he could have just kept doing that in Cage Warriors. Uh, Ilya Taporia called him out earlier on this card. That's a matchup I'd like to see. You know, he had some shit talk about Georgians, uh, but if he doesn't want that, uh, assuming that Vyacheslav Borshev gets past Marty Casey this weekend, I think that'd be another great one. Another like, just appropriate levels test for both guys. Those matchups sound sick, but I would kind of like Pimblet to fight Alexander Hernandez. Um, What, because you want to get him another funny highlight reel before he fights one of those guys who will probably take his head off? I think it'll be really funny to see two guys that are basically two sides of the same coin fight. Because they're giving Pimblet some shitty, like some bad matchmaking just to like have him beat up some cans but then give him a guy whose job is also that but in a much like less consistent way that's smaller because patty pimblett still has to come back against the cans yeah yeah and alexander hernandez can sometimes be broken but normally not by the cans so it's two can crushers going against each other and then whoever emerges can be the one that's the ultimate can crusher other than charles lavera who's the best can crusher in the sport but i mean sometimes you get so good at crushing cans that it works on good fires yeah, the Charles Oliveira story. Crush enough cans, you fucking be able to crush a building. No, no, Gunnar Nelson beat Takashi Sato. Yeah, Gunny like kind of went neutral on the feet. He he was they were landing about the same. Like nothing really interesting happened on the feet aside from Nelson staying all the way in or all the way out. But it was really messy. Anytime he clinched up with Sato, he would just kind of grab behind Sato's head. Sato would pull out, and then Nelson would be like, "Cool, you're away from me now." And then it would get to the ground, and Nelson would get the back immediately. He did it once in each round, and then just kept the back the entire time, and kind of like started working for ground and pound. Uh, but it was like he should have hit the body more or something. Like he was just going for the same like three moves over and over. He he discovered the body in the third round, but he it was like too late by then. He was just kind of hunting for the choke that wasn't there, but also winning a fight really easily. So you can't really shit talk the performance that much. Definitely, like, the f- type of fight Nelson should be trying to have after such a long layoff. Yeah, and Gunny's getting up there. It's been nearly three years off, and he's had some stupid injuries in that time. Doing fucking grappling training with strongman like an idiot. So, you know, he's probably not going to be winning very many more relevant rank matchups at welterweight, but, you know, whenever a card rolls around in London or like somewhere in Western Europe like those crowds always love Gunnar Nelson and then uh, Molly McCann came out to fight like she was looking for her first UFC finish and uh, holy shit she got it she knocked Luana Carolina out with a brutal spinning elbow yeah Molly McCann started the first round like a bat out of hell just started blasting her with hooks started hitting the body in, in combination and like almost finished Carolina on the feet on like three or four occasions. So she probably got a 10 8 in the first. In the second round, Carolina started making some adjustments, started being able to like use her clinch and length to annoy McCann. McCann's defense looked good throughout the whole fight, but it was at the expense of her being able to get in range a lot of the time. She would just defend and then be stuck at the end of range after a nice defensive maneuver. 
So Carolina started punching her in the clinch, getting some knees to the body, threatening knees to the head if Molly got too reckless on her entries. And then in the third round, it seemed like Luana was kind of taken over, but Molly, you know, just stayed in there. And at about three minutes left in the round, uh, got like in a clinch situation. And you could see her setting up a spinning elbow for like three seconds before. And anyone watches like, oh, no way that Molly McCann's about the spinning elbow, Luana Carolina. That'd be fucking silly. That can't happen. And then she just fucking turned on UFC four and knocked her out. It was hilarious. It was one of the most devastating KOs I've ever seen. And it was by someone that doesn't normally knock people out. So what did you think about the fight? I mean, yeah, I loved the, um, every time Molly McCann got Luana Carolina to the fence, she was just like trying to do a J kick knockout. She was just blasting like a 19 punch combination of alternating hooks to the body and head looking like fucking Gokan Saki out there. And then there was the, the slam. Oh my God. I forgot about the slam. It was uh, some some kind of lift. I don't have the wrestling terminology for that, but it was some wacky-ass WWE shit at the end of the second round. It was fucking sick. Um, but Luana Carolina was kind of doing an okay job of working her way into the fight over the course of it until she got just fucking killed by that elbow. Um, I hope they keep her around because I kind of appreciate her game conceptually, even though she just isn't really athletic enough to do it. She's actually got some nice kicks and and she's pretty good offensively in the clinch. So like a lot of people who aren't going to be as dedicated about constantly keeping in boxing range as Molly McCann, that's actually a surprisingly difficult style. I mean, we thought that she beat Lupi Godinez, but fucking good for Molly McCann getting this kind of win with a hometown crowd. Yeah, it, it was a little out of nowhere, the actual KO, because it looked like Carolina was about to fight her way to winning a draw after getting 10 in the first. And then, nah, she just got fucking killed. And then, as you said last week when we were previewing the fight, this was kind of the same fight, but athletic. Uh, Ilya Taporia versus Jai Herbert. Ilya Taporia's first move up to lightweight where there were concerns about how he was going to deal with the frame that he had already generally being at a significant height and reach disadvantage at featherweight. Um, but he's been building a style around working around a height and reach disadvantage. Um, and he's athletic as shit. He's really strong and he hits hard as fuck. So I, I don't see any reason why lightweight can't work out for him. He's got similar kind of proportions to Armin Saryukian, who's doing really well recently. And... Um, he sent Jai Herbert to the fucking shadow realm and not without adversity. Jai Herbert showed why he's so dangerous, hit Ilya Taporia with a really nice left high kick as Taporia was like a little overextended on a big right hand early. And when he dropped him from that high kick, I was like, oh damn, it's over. That was big. But uh, Taporia, he's tough as fuck and he's got insane recovery. And as Jai Herbert was trying to finish on the ground, Taporia was able to win the scramble, end up on top and get his shit together and kind of just uh, beat Herbert up from top for the rest of the round because Herbert's a little bit of a void off his back as we discussed before. Looked improved though. But then in the second round, Taporia just turned up the pressure and really started closing Herbert down. Uh, Michael Bisping really dropped a couple of clangers on commentary tonight when leading up to the finishing sequence, he was complimenting the lateral movement of Jai Herbert talking about how well he was moving around on the outside, making it hard for Ilya Taporia set to set up. And then Taporia just gets him to the cage, lands a 
right overhand, left hook to the body, right overhand that sent Jai Herbert fucking flying. Brutal walk-off knockout. Yeah, and like people see the the punch to the head that knocked him out and, and kind of don't notice that the left hook to the body literally lifted Jai Herbert into the air. So like, you know, it, it sucks getting punched by an overhand from Iliad Spuria, but it sucks like three times worse to be in midair when you get hit in the chin. He had no base to get hit by or to get hit while and like recover onto. He was just done. He, he like fell over like a giraffe. Yeah, so as we said, Taporia called out Paddy Pimblet. I, I, I'd love to see that fight. If not, Ilya Taporia is on the kind of win streak where even though this is his first fight at lightweight and it's an unranked guy, um, he's just been looking so good and still beating good guys in devastating fashion. You could just start giving him ranked matchups at this point. Like, let's go, Ilya Taporia. Whatever we have to match him up against to get him a fight with Gregor Gillespie. Oh, that's a good one. But also, fuck that. He should keep doing it for the Short Kings and just fight like uh, Jalen Turner. Yeah, uh, one last thing about the the matchup is that it was kind of a tall guy that doesn't like being pressured by short guys fighting a short guy that doesn't like being pressured by tall guys. So anytime they started to pressure each other, it, the dynamics swung immediately. Like, Tapuria started out the fight kind of pushing Herbert back. And then Herbert was like, oh, well, I don't like this, so I'm going to start pressuring him. And then once he started pressuring Tapuria, he got a knockdown on the counter. And then in the next round, Tapuria's main adjustment could be boiled down to move forward and cut cage and then land punch. Which I think he was able to do a lot more freely because of all the time on top that he got. Likely, yes. And Joe Herbert was just so much more worried about maintaining long range, which just made it easier to push him back. Um, but yeah, uh, it's MMA, man who moved forward win. And then uh, headlining the prelims, Macron Amakani versus Mike Grundy. A fight where I picked Mike Grundy, but I definitely put out the possibility that if he goes too hard on a sloppy shot early against Macron Amakani, he might just get Anaconda choked. And that happened like instantly. <laughs> it was an embarrassing brain thinking by Grundy, but also... You gotta love Makwan just doing his thing again. It's, it's just really funny. Yeah, this is how he's gonna win. Yeah, Grundy, um, if he didn't just feel the need to wrestle so aggressively with everyone, he really could have just lamed out a good chunk of the first round just jabbing with Makwan Amakani, not just immediately throwing himself into Makwan's win condition. And uh, he did a lot, of, a lot of good things to try and get out of the anaconda choke but um that's macron's move like he knows how to make the adjustments to finish it and once once he locked up the legs so that grundy couldn't like adjust his posture to try and get any space uh yeah that was it and then uh sergey pavlovich knocked out shamil abdurakimov towards the end of the first round shamil looking pretty old and sergey pavlovich uh is like a Pretty good heavyweight. It's good to have him back around in the division. He goes shit stomp from top by Alistair Overeem, but that's a thing that happens. He's just a pretty well-schooled, considered technician on the feet. Uh, Shamil looked uh, the worst he's ever looked, and that's not that surprising. He's very old. But you know what? I, I still believe in Shamil. You never stop believing in Shamil. Yeah, I mean, this should have... Uh, 
Pavlovich. Yeah, we should give Sergei Pavlovich uh, near the top ten. The loser of you can fight someone like Marcin uh, Tabor or, or even like the loser next. of uh, this weekend's main event. And then uh, Paul Craig, which kind of deserves like again. a ranked fight. He just uh, this was a another moment where Michael Bisping just didn't have a fucking clue what he was watching because. Leading up to the, the finishing sequence in this fight, he's saying, oh, you know what, Paul Craig? I know it's his thing to pull guard. He just loves jiu-jitsu. But, you know, he's really, really not doing anything from this position. He's just, like, giving the fight up. He should really try and work back to his feet. And then uh, Nikita Krylov, uh, having spent pretty much the whole round just on top of Paul Craig, tried to posture up to get some space to land ground about and uh, just got triangled like instantly. Yeah, I believe it was him throwing a hammer fist that Paul Craig parried out of the way and then immediately swung up the triangle. It was so gorgeous. He got it up so quick. He had a few nice attempts before, but like the actual finish, the one they got the finish with was so nice. Yeah, Nicky Krills, this motherfucker like thought he was Fedor or some shit. He was just like, oh, I, I, I will just I'll stay in this man's deadly guard and land ground and pound. No, he got triangled. Like, obviously that was going to happen. Yeah, to the surprise of absolutely no one, Paul Craig won by triangle against guy who has been submitted in, like, many of his losses. Normally by weird submission, too. So, like, it's the least weird way that Krylov has been submitted, probably, in his entire career. And then Paul Craig did not retire. Uh, he called for a main event in Glasgow against Anthony Smith. Um, I'm down for a Paul Craig main event in Glasgow. That sounds like my kind of party. Triangle guy versus triangle guy. Yeah, because like, if he wants to fight up the division, uh, Anthony Smith probably one of the better matchups for him at the top. Even though he's one of the better jiu-jitsu players around light heavyweight, he's someone who might actually do jiu-jitsu with Paul Craig, and that may very well be a terrible mistake. And uh, Jack Shaw uh, defeated Timor Valiev by unanimous decision. Uh, this really was a great fight. This was one of those fights where uh, it, it was almost like a Calvin Cater versus Shane Burgos type thing where you're watching two uh, prospects have a fight where you look at, the, you look at both of them and go, wow, you, you, you guys could be like, seriously elite in the future. It was a really well-matched fight where... Well, we got to see what makes uh, both fighters are so good and also some of their limitations that are going to give them difficulties in a division as stacked as Bantamweight moving forward. Timur Valiev did a really good job of you know, using, his, using his wide variety of very quick, dexterous kicks to give Jack Shaw some trouble closing range earlier. And he would kind of bait Jack Shaw into kicking battles and then counter Jack Shaw's kicks with reactive takedowns to get time on top. But Jack Shaw is a really crafty fighter who he has some really slick boxing and really adapts to his opponent's offense over the course of a fight and had Timor Valley have more and more figured out as the fight went deep, which, as we've said, is almost is also a problem for Timor Valiev, where which is because he isn't that powerful of a striker. He's normally just having to ride this line of running away with of a volume leads while trying not to get killed, which, you know, in all of his fights in the UFC now, he's been at least badly knocked down and, in, and knocked out in one of them. And yet, 
as Jack Shaw was uh, able to extend the pocket exchanges and punctuate with left hooks, he started cracking Timor Valiev hard in the third round. Yeah, it was an interesting fight because they they both like addressed issues that we had with them prior. Like Valiev was doing more with just actually throwing stuff and not relying on like six layers of fainting before he actually just throws something. He was like stepping in with low kicks whenever he saw the opportunity. Like he he was address he was addressing a lot of the main problems of his style, which was nice. But he's still himself. And then, uh, like Jack Shore kind of had to fight against type a little bit. Like he normally his style is to just neutralize his opponent's game offensively and then work to a takedown, get them on the fence, and then try and get like rear naked choke or just you know keep the back, just overall win the fight and kind of grind his opponent out. And then this one, he had to like kind of just wait for his moment because he was less athletic than his opponent and then try and kill him in single moments off of really educated reads that he had gotten over the course of the fight. So that was, it was a pretty good look for both of them. Like I think Valley of maybe is proving to have a lower ceiling just because, you know, he is getting tired in the third round, every fight and then getting fucked up when the fight goes a little bit longer and he might not be able to like sustain the pace he needs to win a fight. But Jack Shore, he, on the other hand, I kind of think showed some better, uh, better looks than he had shown prior for being able to beat someone that's more athletic than him, or more traditionally athletic than him. Yeah, I think it shows his adaptability as a fighter. Definitely, that, like you say, he he generally wants to be more of a neutralizer, and will kind of just chill to decision wins, where he's like easily tooling his his opponent up, but not like turning it up to really try and work for finishes. Um, but in this fight, like I think he just knew that it was too close because of the volume, and you know just the kicks and the wrestling of Valiev that he had to actually like go out there and and put a real stamp on that last round when he had kind of had Timur Valiev figured out. So I do think it could be a little bit of an issue for him moving forward that just because he's not the biggest hitter and he starts a little slow. That even though he really he really does figure his opponent out very well over the course of a fight. I just worry that against higher levels of competition, that might just come a little too late in a fight and he might end up dropping some decisions where he's not able to, where he's not able to get these kind of big moments because um, there's a lot of people at Bantamweight who I just don't think he's, I just don't think he's going to be able to necessarily hang with physically and, and give that much trouble like offensively, even if he's landing well. Um, but he's a very well-schooled fighter, and I'm, I'm I'm happy to have him around. Yeah, and if he can get to a top level, I could see him providing problems to a guy like Rob Font, like just on being a very adaptable fighter, and Font having some routes to victory that he could get leverage against him by Shore. So there are matchups even for Shore at the top level of the division that I think he could do well in. Depending on matchups, I think he could be a solid top 10 fighter. And if he can get himself into five rounders, I think he's just going to flourish more and more as the fights go deeper with the kind of style that he has. I think, think maybe he should fight Marab. Damn. There's no way they're going to give him Marab just yet. And I feel like it seems like too much of a step up just in terms of where Marab's ranked with the kind of wins that he's been able to put together recently. I mean, it would definitely be interesting to see how Jack Shaw would just deal with that kind of just absolutely relentless pace. But uh, for guys who are around his level, but also streaking and looking like they're going to be elite in the not-too-distant future, uh, he was recently booked both with 
Saeed Namagamedov and Umar Namagamedov. So um, I, I'd like to see him rebooked with either of those fights. That'd be very neat. And it would be a good way to progress both fighters in either of those matchups. Uh, so at least Reed beat Corey McKenna by split decision. Yeah, uh, Corey McKenna has 58-inch reach and couldn't land her left hook because at least Reed kept fading back or stepping in deep with a right straight that had like seven inches more range. So it was a pretty good look for McKenna in some regards in the way that she was tracking her opponent and actually able to get into land some punches. But most of the time, she looked like there was like a hard cap on how good she's going to end up being with the weird physical limitations she has. But I'm always hopeful that maybe she'll find power at some point in her career and then start fucking people up with like one of the shortest reaches in the division. Maybe one of the shortest reaches in the UFC. And she's very young. She could get a lot better. She's definitely a very solid technician pretty much everywhere. And... You know, like you say, with, with the the point that she's at in her career and the kind of style she has, I can definitely see her making a lot of improvements over her run in the UFC. But there is a pretty hard cap on people she's going to be able to compete with physically in this division, at least at this point. Not just with uh, a 42-inch reach. She's just not that strong or powerful or quick. But she's a very smart fighter and it'd be nice to see her put it together. Yeah, and Elise Reed, I hadn't seen before, but she looked pretty good. So that's fun. Always like new people. And then uh, Mohamed Makayev uh, easily destroyed Cody Durden. Did a flying knee and then did a ninja choke and won in a minute. Um, Apparently this guy is a pretty good prospect. Doesn't have a particularly extensive record, but it was a good win. And he has a big amateur record. So, yeah, he, he should be fun for a while. Seems like he's going to be one of the next guys that the UFC really tries to hype up. So, hopefully they give him a fast-track matchmaking. And at that weight class, it's pretty hard not to, given that if he wins, like, another fight, he's going to be top 10. So This is a, it's a pretty damn good card. One of the best cards the UFC's had in a while. It, it You can tell just by how many finishes there are that it's a good card. Yeah, you can catch us in uh, just a few days where we're going to be previewing this weekend's Fight Night card, headlined by another heavyweight main event between Curtis Blaze and Chris Dorcas. Um, but there's a actually a bunch more interesting matchups to talk about on that card. And also in that episode, we're going to be talking about the one championship event on Friday with uh, Demetrius Johnson versus Rod Tang, a Superbond rematching Marak Gregorian, Sitachai fighting Chingas Alazov for the kickboxing grand prix final match there's going to be a whole bunch of stuff to talk about on that episode so should be should be a good one i will see you then later